Alrighty. Keep filling up those classes. <laughs> Most of you know we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and so we're in Matthew chapter 17 this morning, and so I want to go ahead and uh, read the, the text for us as we cl- close off the uh, last uh, chapter here, or chapter 17, the last couple verses of chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 and uh, begin reading in verse 22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. And Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, Go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. In recent years, I believe the church has become more involved and more interested in politics economics, all the things that go on in this world. Um, Some specifically endorse a certain individual who may be running for office or a campaign or candidate that maybe they think supports their Christian values or something along that line. Other believers take a mindset that Christians should shy away from political and government involvement as much as possible, leaving the running of the secular government to the secular world. And they believe the only legitimate work for the church is to preach the gospel and to see people one to him and faithfully live by the word of God's standards for the believer. But Christianity has been become very, you might say, interwoven in worldly politics and in economics. Today you even have Christian lobby groups who lobby certain legislatures for certain things, certain congressmen, certain senators, whatever. Um, There are a lot of Christian groups out there who protest certain things, who are against what the government is doing or may be doing or want to do, and... Um, there's a lot of that going on at the state level as well as the national level. And there's a lot of question today among believers, among Christians, 
is should they, how involved should they be in politics? How involved should they be involved in fighting this world system? How critical should we be of our leaders, of our president, of our congressman or congresswoman or senator? Where does the believer draw that line? This particular passage we're going to look at kind of allows us to see clearly the answer to some of these questions. Um, there are Christians today that believe that w- there should be a revolt. Hence the, nothing to, against the Tea Party people, but if you understand anything about the Tea Party, you understand where, what their um, intentions were originally and how they relate to that. And so we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, what is, should be our role as a believer as far as citizens? This morning we see a taxing question before us, the believer in citizenship, and Jesus kind of answers that. And, uh, but I want to get, look at this text and give us a little bit of a background before we look at really how the Christian finds a balance and the believer's relationship to this secular world and its authority. Um, now, we're going to look at verses 22 and 27, Lord willing. And remember, at this particular phase in Jesus' life, this is about the last six months of his life before he's going to go and die on a cross on Calvary. So he's got about six months left. And he spent a great portion of this time with his disciples desiring to teach them and disciple them and focused on the 12. He pushed away from all the crowds. He came away from all them and he gathered the 12 around him and he realized his time was running out and he needed to instill in them some very basic teachings. And it begins in chapter 17, verse 14, and it goes all the way through chapter 20, verse 34. He's calling his disciples constantly to his side, and he's huddling them together, and he's sharing some basic uh, principles with them concerning humility, concerning faith, concerning how you, you may offend someone, or discipline, forgiveness, marriage. He goes on, children, wealth, compassion. He covers a whole bunch of things with them. And it's almost like he's just dumping all this information on them because he wants them to be prepared when he does leave, when he goes back to heaven, that they can carry on the kingdom work here on earth so they know how to respond to some of the opposition that they're going to be facing. So it's really, you might look at it as a a seminary education for these guys, all crammed into a matter of months, and it's kind of intense. I remember when I was going to Bible college, the, the college that I went to at that time was on a module system. And a module system is basically every three weeks you take one class. And you take that class from 8 o'clock in the morning till 1 in the afternoon. In other words, you start on Monday. The first Friday you have your first final. The second Friday you have your second final. The third Friday you have the final exam for the whole course. And so you're, you're just cramming all this information into your... I'm not saying it's the best way to study, but that's how they were set up. And it worked for the school until one summer I was required to take New Testament Greek. <laughs> Try to do that in three weeks. You know, a year of Greek, and it's impossible. So they had a abbreviated kind of a... or an extended version. It actually went six weeks. So you covered a year's worth of Greek in six weeks. It was, it was insane. Well, that's kind of what he was doing with his disciples here. He was just dumping all this information on them. Now, look at verse 22. It says, when they 
while they were uh, sta- uh, staying in Galilee, they were, you might say, wandering around Galilee. Uh, it doesn't really tell us where they were. It says, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. He said to, this, to his disciples, betrayed into the hands of men. We don't know exactly where they were in Galilee, so they were just kind of wandering around Galilee. They were in Caesarea Philippi, remember, and they came down and they went um, to the Mount of Transfiguration. They came off the mountain, the disciples that went up there with him, and they saw Jesus heal a demon-possessed epileptic boy who was possessed of a demon. That's previous verses there. And so they're still wandering around Galilee. Perhaps they're on their way to Capernaum, where they're going to stay there for a little while. And somewhere along that time, Jesus calls them to his side. And this is what is basically the third prediction of his death. The first one was in chapter 16, verse 21. The second one was in chapter 17, verse 12. And now comes the third predicament, of, or his, he's predicting his death. So they're wandering around Galilee. Mark 9.30 tells us, that they is the disciples of the Lord, that's all, that's who's there with him. And he tells them the Son of Man will be handed over. That, that verb phrase, they're handed over or given over, it's, it's what they call a passive verb. In other words, somebody's going to hand him over. And that's the first inclination that Judas, being the culprit in the betrayal, that someone among them is going to actually hand them over. That's why it says there they took that liberty, betrayed. They took the translators took that liberty to, to translate that betrayed because it's implicit there. That's what it means. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed, handed over. And it says that he'll be handed over and they shall what? Kill him. Now, we know that Judas was a betrayer. We're looking back on this. We know that. They didn't know that at the time. And we know the men whom he was handed over was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. We know that from verse 23, that they killed him. See, whenever the Bible puts the responsibility for the death of Christ on a human group of people, it's always on the Jewish leaders. The Jewish people rejected their Messiah, and they were responsible for his execution. Peter says that in Acts 2. He says, you men of Israel, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain Jesus of Nazareth. See, the Romans were the executioners. Those are the ones that actually carried out the sentence. But the Jewish leaders were the murderers. They were the ones who whipped the mob into the the frenzy that they became. And they turned against Christ. That's nothing to, to say anything bad about Jewish people. That's just, matter of fact, that, that, that right there speaks of anybody who would reject Christ. Not just those of the Jewish faith. faith. But they were the ones that he's speaking of here who betrayed him and, uh, or, or that killed him. Judas was the one who betrayed him. And then it says this in verse 22. It says, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. Verse 23, they will kill him. And then what? The third day he will be raised up. 
Somehow they didn't catch that part of what Jesus was saying. Have you ever been in a situation where you were giving some information to somebody? Maybe it was shocking information. Maybe it was about a death, an accident, something happened to somebody, and you had to tell them some bad news, and you, you, you tell it to them once, and all they hear is the first part of whatever you're saying because their body literally goes into shock. And you have to make sure that you follow up. Do you understand what I'm saying? I've had to do that lots of times as a chaplain, and you're informing somebody of a death in the family or something, and you know all they hear is the very beginning of your statement. And so you have to be careful sometimes how you phrase things. Well, Jesus spoke pretty plainly here. I mean, we read this and say, well, okay, he's going to be killed, but he's going to be raised up. They didn't hear the raised up part. They were in shock. Matter of fact, in Mark 9.32, it says they were, they were in so much shock, they, they didn't understand what they were saying, what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. They didn't even want to know. All they heard is Jesus was going to die. And so we have to stop and we have to think, you know, how did they miss that? Now remember, three of these guys had just come off of the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen Christ in all his glory. They've come down. They saw him use his power to, to uh, deliver a boy who was demon-possessed. And they're on cloud nine. I mean, these guys are just ready to take on the world. And Jesus, just at that point, he calls them aside and he says, by the way, don't forget... You know, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be turned over. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. They didn't hear that. They went right into despair. So many times in our lives, that's what happens. We hear bad news, and immediately, what does our body do? It shuts down, and we just go right into despair. We look right into the, the eyes of depression, and we just think, oh, this is too big for me. I can't, you know, handle this. They had to be reminded even later on after the resurrection, they didn't really understand what was going on. But when they looked back, then, see, then it all made sense. Then it all made sense. Then they could see this whole thing as God's plan. See, if Jesus wouldn't have taken time and shared with them this kind of information, hey, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. They would have been left to their own logic thinking, wow, somehow God messed up. <laughs> but no, this was all part of God's plan. And he wanted them to clearly understand that. And so rather than look back on these events and say, wow, what happened? You know, here there was the Messiah, and then, you know, he went and died on the cross, and then he rose again. They could see the whole plan of God. It wasn't a mistake. It was all within the plan of God. Do you know everything that goes on in your life? is within the plan of God as a believer in Christ. Nothing happens in your life that is outside his plan for you. What about bad things, including bad things? Either you believe that God is sovereign or you don't. Either you believe that God is all-powerful or you don't. Either you believe God is a God of wonders, as we sang about this morning, or you don't. There's no sense in believing in a little God. I mean, if you want to do that, just believe in yourself. But I choose to believe in an all-powerful God, a God who rises above all. And so when something drops itself, a big trial or situation drops itself right in my lap, I don't have to get all 
bent out of shape and worry and fret and figure out, oh, no, what, you know, the world's coming to an end. No. God is perfectly in control. And he allowed that thing to drop right in my lap for a certain reason, for a purpose. I mean, you look at the world situation today, what's going on over in Egypt and, you know, the whole Middle East. I mean, it's just a mess. It's very easy to, if you start watching the news, man, you could sit there and, and just wring your hands and worry after a while. But you know what? God's in control. God's in complete control. And so he has to let them know that he's going to die. He reminds them of that. He reminds them that he's going to be raised from the dead, but they didn't really hear that. That's why it says at the end there of verse 23, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. They thought, oh, game over. You know, no, no uh, extra life. You know, when you, I remember when I used to play video games. I used to work in an arcade, and you'd get so many points, and then you'd get an extra life. So even if he got killed, you could still play. Pretty cool. Well, they thought their extra lives have ran out. They thought, this is it. If they're going to kill him, they're going to kill us. And they began to fret. They began to worry. And then, in verse 24, we come to this miracle that happens. This taxing question that comes up. Now, just before we get into this text, I want you to notice a couple things about this miracle. And they're there in your notes. First of all, the miracle is recorded only by Matthew. He's the only gospel writer that records this miracle. He's a former tax collector, as you remember. He wrote the gospel of Matthew to reveal King Jesus. He wanted to reveal Christ as king. And this miracle really affirms our Lord's kingship, that he's king over all the earth, including a fish in the sea, everything. It's kind of a... Unique thing, though, because as a son of God, even though he was over everything, he was too poor to pay even his half shekel of tax. They didn't have any money. Don't think that for a minute Jesus and his disciples were kind of like these guys you see on TV, you know, with their diamond rings and their gold bracelets and all sorts of things and driving their limousines and all that. That's not not what happened. It says that they didn't even have a place to put their head. So they basically went from... Somebody would give them a house to sleep in. That's where they would. If not, they'd throw their mat down in the grass and sleep there. They didn't have a lot of resources. Secondly, it's the only miracle using money. Kind of interesting. Matthew has been a tax collector. And you would expect him to be interested in this miracle as a tax collector. And this tax had its origin back in the time of Moses. And the original tax money was used to make these little silver sockets that they would use in the tabernacle where they put the poles in and even after it's kind of interesting after the the uh, the, the temple was destroyed all right the romans imposed a tax and they call, c- called it the same kind of tax and they used it for a temple to a pagan god but the jews were still required to pay it pretty interesting side note So it was the only miracle used by money. Also, it was performed for Peter. How the other disciples paid their taxes, we don't know. You know, maybe they had to go work or so. I don't know. But this one was a miracle that Jesus performed just for Peter. That would be pretty cool. But he did a lot of things for Peter. So he was probably getting used to it by now. He healed his mother-in-law. He helped Peter catch fish before in Luke 5. He enabled him to walk on the water. He healed... The uh, Roman 
soldier's ear, Malchus's ear, after Peter tried to slice it off. And he even delivered Peter from prison in Acts. I mean, no wonder Peter, when he comes down to it in 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, hey, you know what? You're worried? Don't worry about it. Cast all your cares upon him. He cares for you. Why? Peter knew it. He knew it firsthand from the Lord himself. So it was performed by Peter, but it was also a miracle which does not have the results recorded. Look at it. At the end of this, this, this text, it just says Jesus told him to go do this. We don't know what happened. doesn't tell us. We'd expect to find another verse there. And Peter went to the sea and cast a hook in and drew up a fish. And when he had opened its mouth, he found there a coin and he used it to pay the temple tax for Jesus and himself. But the Bible doesn't say that. It's just not there. Verse 28 is not there. <laughs> How would you know that that miracle took place? Well, first of all, because Jesus said it would. Jesus is a man of his word. He wouldn't lie. Secondly, in 1 Kings 8.56, it says, There has not failed one word of his good promise, speaking of God. When God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen, beloved. You don't have to sit around and worry. Well, I don't know if God's going to keep his word. But we still need to commend Peter for his, for his faith. I mean, he went out there and actually found this fish and did it. I mean, it probably didn't make a lot of logical sense for Peter, but he did it. Well, I want you to, 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 to look with me this morning. What does the Bible have to say to us as believers as far as government involvement, as far as where should our priorities be? What does the Bible say about the believer as a citizen? Well, it says a couple things. First of all, Christians are primarily citizens of heaven. First point, Christians are primarily citizens for heaven. Look at Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to jump around a little bit this morning, because, and then we'll come back and, and look at the miracle but in, in Matthew 17. But in Philippians chapter 3, In verse 17, he begins, he talks about our citizenship being in heaven. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern for many walk whom I've already told you often and now are even weeping, weeping they, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, those whose end is destruction, their God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So right away, he gets into this. And then in verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, how can we follow the mandate to be a citizen of heaven and yet still be good citizens here on earth? On one hand, we have earthly things. We have an earthly government. We have earthly president. We have earthly government officials, all those things, earthly rules. But we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is clearly there. What does the Bible say about us as far as being citizens? It says, first of all, that our citizenship is in heaven. In Ephesians 2.19, it says, We are fellow citizens with all the saints. 
So we're fellow citizens as believers in Christ, very special group of people, a heavenly group even, that's called the household of God. Hebrews 12, it says that we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of, of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are written in heaven. So there's an assembly of people who are in heaven. But last time I checked, we're still here on earth. So how do we work this out? Well, second point is Christians are to be separate from the world. They're to be separate from the world. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, verse 17 says, Therefore, Paul says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So don't think for a moment, because we live down here in this world physically, even though our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. Don't think for a minute that God expects us just to get out there and muck around in the muck of the world, in the sin of the world, saying, hey, that's okay. No, it's not. The Bible clearly says that we should be a separate people here on earth. We're not to chime in with the world system. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is how serious God takes this. So we've got to find this balance. We're here physically on earth, but where's the balance? We don't want to totally go out there and mix it up with the world because we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be separate. In Philippians 2, it goes on to say that we're blameless, harmless children of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And in that nation, we're supposed to shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. So we're not supposed to be separate in a way that we build our little fort, (laughs) you know, the little holy huddle, as I like to call it. And, you know, whenever the world approaches us, we hold our fingers up like a cross and, oh, stay away. I can't, you know, I'm separate. You know, God did not call us to be monks. We don't go up on the top of a mountain and and live in isolation from the world. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be light and salt in a world and hold forth the word of life. But we're still called to be separate. We're called to be apart from, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, as Ephesians 5 says. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. If we're citizens of heaven and we belong to an assembly of people whose names are written called the household of God, the household of faith, the saints of God, and we're called soldier or strangers and sojourners here in this world, if this is in our home, beloved, and that's what the Bible indicates, and this is in our country, and this isn't where our citizenship lies, you could very easily conclude that, you know what, we don't have any obligation at all here. We, we live to a higher standard. We, we're called to a higher order. We could even say, you know what, we're, we're a certain community that God has set his love upon. We belong to God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We're superior to all these peons here on earth. You could come up with that conclusion too. 
And if you follow that long enough, you could actually not only not respond, but you could even begin to criticize and tear at and attack this system down here on earth from a viewpoint that our citizenship is in heaven. Well, what's the believer's relationship to worldly authority? How are we to respond to the world? I want you to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, because we're going to work our way back to Matthew, so but we're going to begin in verse, 1 Peter chapter 2. Now remember, Peter is writing these little epistles to believers who are going through a lot of persecution. They're going through a lot of trials for their faith. So the, these folks know what it's like to live in an environment where there's a lot of animosity toward their faith. They were under an oppressed government. A government which gave them not anywhere near the liberty that we enjoy here in the United States of America to express our faith. But he begins in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to focus in on verse 9. He says this, but you are, and he's speaking to believers here, and he begins to rattle off a couple things that classify, that he uses to describe believers. He says, you are, first of all, a chosen generation. A chosen generation. That is, you're elected by God. You're selected by God. You're on God's team. You're a collection of people who have been brought together by God's sovereign, eternal choice. And that means that they're very special in the eyes of God because he chose them himself. A lot of times when a coach gets hired on the NFL, a lot of times they'll have a manager or somebody else who does a lot of the the, the decisions as far as picking the players or recruiting people or whatever. But there's some coaches, they're actually given that privilege. They're given the privilege to pick, handpick their own teams because they're so good at it. And so that team becomes a very special team in the eyes of that coach because he selected himself. He can't blame it on anybody else. Well, in a different way, God looks at us and he says that he chose us, a chosen generation. Secondly, he calls us a royal priesthood. Look at that, a royal priesthood. Not only are you priests who serve the Most High God, but he says you are royal priests. You have not only the role of priests, but the role of the king. You are royalty. You are majesty in Christ. All this is in Christ. Chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And then thirdly, he says you're a holy nation. It's all describing believers. A holy nation. A nation that's set apart. A nation that you might use the word unique. And then, fourthly, he says, you are a people, his own special people. A people of his own. Some translations read a peculiar people. In God's eyes, you're, you're, you're special, but you're not only special, you're, it, it means that you're a people for his special possession. You're uniquely his. And all of those terms speak of our uniqueness as a believer. See, we're not like the world. We're chosen out of the world, the Bible says. We're priests to God. We're royal priests. We're a holy nation. We're different from any other people. By divine possession. And don't think for a minute this has anything to do with you. Don't sit there packing, you know, 
patting yourself on the back saying, yeah, I feel pretty good. I'm a Christian. I feel I'm a special team, you know. No. How did you get on this team? It wasn't by your doing. God didn't look at you and say, oh, I see something special in that person. I'll pick that. The Bible says that he picked you on his team before the foundation of the world. And last time I checked, some of you are pretty old, but you're not that old. You haven't been around since the foundation of the world, okay? We weren't even around. That's what it means. It's just kind of almost indiscriminatory, not based on our goodness or our looks or what we can do, our gifts or talents. It's not based on that. It's based on God's sovereign choice. He chose us because he wanted to choose us. Why? I don't have a clue. I ask myself that every day. But we've been chosen for a purpose to demonstrate his praise, and that's what it says there. It says he called you out of darkness that you may proclaim the praises of him. He wants you to proclaim his grace, his message to those who are still in darkness. Look at what verse 10 says. It says, You were called from darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people. In other words, don't think you were anything because you weren't. You weren't even a people but are now the people of God who have obtained mercy, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In other words, you were nobodies before God set his sovereign divine choice on your life. It's a high calling. And then in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners, you can write there, aliens, Not illegal aliens, just aliens, okay? Okay, carried away. And pilgrims, it says. In other words, you don't belong to this world. He wants his followers to know that. He wants the people who are reading this to know that you don't belong to this world. You're in the world, but you don't belong to it. Have you ever traveled to a different country? Been in a foreign land, you you understand. You know what? You're a United States citizen. You're not a citizen of that country. When you travel to another country, you're just a stranger there. You're an alien. You're a sojourner. You don't belong to that country. They can't come up to you and say, hey, we're enlisting you in our army. They can't do that. You're not a citizen there. They can't even come up to you and say, we're going to tax you. They can't. You're not a citizen there. However, a lot of companies or a lot of countries today have figured out how to do that. Through consumer taxes or whatever. So you're paying the tax even though you don't live there. The same, th- same way our country does. We're not a citizen there. But we're a United States citizen. So he defines us as strangers, not citizens, sojourners, not residents. And what he means to say is don't get too comfortable in your environment. And he tells us how to do that. First of all, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The thing you want to first of all note is you walk in this world that's contaminated with sin. Is stay away from the contamination. Stay away from things that are going to pollute you. Well, I thought you just said we're supposed to be salt and light. I mean, we have to go. Yeah, you have to go out there. Contamination means that you're actually becoming like that. You're allowing the 
fleshly lusts of this world to creep into your own life. So he wants us to know, he's kind of drawing out an a outline here of how to be a good citizen. He said, first of all, don't get contaminated. Stay away from those fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And then he says in verse 12, having your co- conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that they may speak against you as evildoers, they may speak by your good works, which they observe glorify God in the day of your visitation. What's he saying? He's saying basically be honest in your dealings with people in this world. You may not be of this world, but you still have to be honest. You still are not allowed to be contaminated. You shouldn't be contaminated by the the sin that surrounds us. If you run a business, run it in an upright way. If you have employees, treat your employees in in a right way. That will picture for them the love of Christ. See, we don't belong to this economy. We belong to another economy. We belong to another world. We're a citizen of heaven. So the negative command there is to stay away from pollution. The positive one is to to be honest in your dealings with people. Well, how do you do that? Well, he tells us in verse 13. He says, therefore, submit yourselves. That word means to place yourself underneath, to line up underneath, to rank yourself according to others. It says in verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. See, that's the key, for the Lord's sake. He says we need to submit to those in authority over us. Well, what if the law is not correct? What if the law is not right? As God judges rightness. What if the law's unequal? What if the law just doesn't make sense? The only exception we have to obeying the law of man is that if it interferes with the law of God. The government came out and said, you're not to witness anymore or you will be thrown in prison can't tell anybody about your faith in Christ. Well, that directly is opposed to what God has commanded us to do. So at that point, we have to say, you know what? I beg to differ. I'm going to continue to do this, and I will bear the consequences of whatever I do. Because I don't answer to you as human beings. I answer to God. So we're to submit to every law of man for the Lord's sake, it says. Why? Because you're going to be perceived in your society as a good and upright, honest person with integrity and character and moral quality and proper values if you do that. I mean, I've known some Christians that go out and share their faith with people, whatever, and their, their home's a wreck. Or they're cheating their employees. Or they're doing this or they're doing that. Or they're cheating on their taxes, whatever. And they think somehow that because they're out there doing all these good works that all these things that they're doing that are not obedient to the government, well, that's okay. I'll get a pass on that. No, it's not okay. 
The Bible clearly says that we should follow, that we should obey, that we should submit ourselves to the laws that are put before us. The only exception is, is when they are directly opposed to what God's Word says. That's it. It says whether they're a king. You know, I mean, sometimes you hear people talk about our president. You know, and, I, and I'll just be honest with you, I've had similar feelings. But you know what? That's wrong. That's wrong. You can disagree with him till the cows come home. I don't care. But he's our president. Oh, he might be a Muslim. I don't don't care if he's an atheist. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Do you understand? It doesn't matter because I know that God has him in that position. He has him in that position. Well, he may not be a citizen of the United States. I don't care. I don't really care. God has him as president of the United States right now. And you know what? If he walked into this room, we better give him the due respect that we're told to do. doesn't mean you have to agree with him. doesn't mean you have to agree with his policies. That's why we have a government that sorts these things out. See, it's not about politics. It's about doing what God calls us to do. I mean, even in Acts 4 and 5, when they told the, the preachers there, Peter, and what, hey, you know what? You, you can't do this. You're not allowed to preach anymore. What'd they say? Well, you know what? You be the judge. We're going to go do, we're going we're gonna to obey God rather than you guys. So if you have to throw us into prison, throw us into prison. That's okay. But see, today we have a mentality in the Christian churches that when we don't like something, what do we do? We make our little placard and we march out on the corner and we think somehow that's going to accomplish something. What's that do? It just disturbs traffic. It just, it doesn't do anything. I'm not saying don't be involved in the political process. Man, roll your sleeves up and get involved all you want. But do it in a Christ-honoring way. Do it in a way that honors Christ. That shows people the light of Christ. Look at what it says in verse 15. It says, For this is the will of God. That by doing good, not by protesting, not by causing insurrection, none of that, but by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak or a vice, for vice, but as bondservants of God. That word bondservant there, unless you have the Holman translation, That's the word slave. See, we don't translate it that way because it's not politically correct to use that word today. But that's exactly what it... Matter of fact, MacArthur just published a book called Slave. (laughs) And he said when he finished the transcript, he put it in that this... (laughs) We can't call it slave. Are you crazy? He goes, that's what the word means. And in every translation except the Holman translation, they translate it bondservant or servant. They don't translate it slave because of the whole slavery, politically correctness, and all that. But that's the way it's translated. That's exactly what it means. As a matter of fact, when it goes down there in verse 18, look at what he says, servants. That's the word slave. Slaves 
you should read it. Be submissive to your masters with all fear. Well, what if they're not good masters? Well, he covers that not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. You mean if I'm a slave, if I'm unjustly shackled and having to, to, to submit to somebody because they're forcing me to do it, I'm supposed to do that as unto the Lord? Yes. Why? What if they don't treat me right? doesn't matter, even if they're harsh with you. Because he says in verse 19, look at what he says, For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. You deserve it, is what he's saying. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And then he says this in verse 21, which is kind of scary. For to this you were called. (laughs) Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Wow. When's the last time you used that line with somebody you're trying to win to Christ? Hey, come to Jesus and suffer with me. (laughs) Doesn't sound very inviting, does it? That's exactly what it's saying, though. We have to be clear what the Word of God says. Are we citizens of this world? No, we're not. We're citizens of heaven, but we are here physically. So we we do have some responsibility as, you might say, temporary citizens here. Legally, we're called citizens. How do we carry that out? Well, we should do it as unto the Lord, honoring Him. Turn over to Romans 13 quickly. Romans 13. I just want to look at one verse there and then we'll jump back to Matthew. Romans 13, verse 1. It says this, Let every soul be subject to what? The governing authorities. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. It's the same word there. Come under the higher powers. Speaking of government. It says, for there is no authority except from God. Do you think these people just raise themselves up by themselves? No. For the authorities that exist are what? Appointed by God. You mean even those liberal politics? Yeah. What about the, the guys that are out there believing in abortion? Yeah. What about the people that are atheists? Yeah. Surely not the people that want to take, in God we trust off the money. Yeah. If they're in a leadership role, it's very clear. It says God put them there. We may not like it, but that's what it says. And so he's, he's saying basically don't think that you're all that. I mean, yeah, you go and you vote and you vote for the best possible candidate that you know, hopefully expresses biblical views on your issues of the thing. But you know what? I mean, that's not where you have your faith in. I mean, if your faith is in the ballot box, look out. I mean, they've been tweaking that thing for years. Go and vote for something. Well, we voted on it. That's what we want. Some judge somewhere, it doesn't matter. 
we're going to overrule that. So, I mean, it's all a big, you know, and God is over all that. There is no power but of God and the powers that are ordained by God. I don't know about you, but that helps me sleep at night. So really, if you resist the power of the government, if you resist those in authority over you, you're resisting an ordinance of God. I mean, do you ever think back in these days, I mean, the Romans, they had Christians as slaves. Do you ever wonder why the, the, the Christians didn't start an insurrection? Didn't start, you know, protesting out in the streets? and Didn't start doing all these things? Because the Roman government was ordained by God, that's why. I mean, when you look back on it now, they couldn't see this then, but when we look back on it now, the Roman government was the government that provided one world language, which facilitated the preaching of the gospel around the world, the Greek language. That was the direct cause of the Roman government being in authority. It was the Roman government that provided what they call the Pax Romana, which brought peace to that whole part of the world, which allowed intercourse between countries and nations all over the place so the gospel could be spread so freely. It was the Roman government who established the Roman roads and the highways and trade roads and ship roads, all that stuff that missionaries could come later and take the gospel and carry it from one place to all these other places. See, God put the Roman government there to facilitate the gospel even though they didn't even believe it or didn't even know what was going on. And so it's not our role to second-guess God, but we have to accept what the Bible says, that the powers are ordained by God. And if you resist the powers that be, you resist, you're resisting God. If you do that, verse 2 says you're going to bring judgment on yourself there in Romans 13. Look at what he says in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. See, we need to... I'm not saying that there's... Never a time where the government tells us to do something and, and if it violates what the Word of God says, then obviously we obey God more than man and we've got to bear the consequences. So you can see that as citizens of this world, citizens of this world, you know, we can look at that and say, okay, well... What if they raise the taxes more? Does that mean I have to pay my fair share? Yeah. That's exactly what it means. I heard a story of one guy. He went to his pastor, and he sat down across from his pastor's desk, and he whipped out his checkbook. And he goes, hey, check this out. And he slid the checkbook over to his pastor, and the pastor read the heading on it, and it said, The Church of John Smith. And the pastor looked at it. He goes, I don't understand what this is. He goes, that's my church. I'm a nonprofit organization. I don't have to pay taxes. So the pastor sat there for a moment. He goes, well, do people go to this church? He goes, I do. I'm the pastor of that church. 
Well, do other people? Well, no, nobody else goes. I mean, it's my church. Okay, so do you have a meet place you meet at? Well, we, I meet in my bedroom. Do other people come? No. So it's really not a church. You know, and he kind of unfolded this for the guy. The guy got upset and laughed. But he really believed that somehow, hey, he was working within the confines of the law to, you know, manipulate the system to get out from paying his fair share of taxes. But you know what? In the end, they caught him. He got arrested, got fined, lost everything he had. Why? Because he was in violation of the law. Pretty basic. Pretty basic. So with all that in mind, go back to Matthew chapter 17, and we'll close this out. Matthew 17. It says in verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, that little town where Peter lived, we've actually been there, some of, some of us have gone over there, we've seen, seen the ruins of, of Peter's house. It's amazing to think that Jesus was actually there. And they stayed there on several occasions. But it says, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? So they're in a house, probably in Peter's house. And for whatever reason, Peter probably leaves the house and goes out and looks for some food or whatever. He's gathering something. And the, uh, the, the tax collectors of the day came and they wanted to know, are you guys paying your taxes? Are you, do you have a plan to pay your taxes? He says, does your master pay the, the, the drachma, the, 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 the temple tax is what it was. It wasn't a Roman tax. It was a Jewish tax. And what they'd use this money for is for the, the, upkeep of the temple. Now, it started out as just a yearly tax. Everybody of a certain age, of a certain, they, they had to pay this tax. Well, as most politicians do, here it was the religious system, they basically took that once-a-year deal, or some say it was even once in a lifetime you had to pay it, but they moved it to once a year, and then it became, you know, this, this regular thing all of a sudden. And so it was a tax, just like we know the tax. And they want to know, are you going to pay this tax? These publicans would collect it. And this tax has been around for for a long time. It's not something they just came up with, but it was for the care of the temple. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Well, look at what Peter says. He says there quickly, he says, oh, sure it does, sure he does. He pays the temple tax, and then he left, and he went back to the house. The interesting point was even after the temple was destroyed, as I said before, the Roman government taxed the same people, not for their own temple, but for a pagan temple, and they were required to pay it, which is kind of interesting, because sometimes we can look at where our tax money goes, you know, and you're, you're thinking... You know, I gotta get out. I gotta find a way around this. I don't want my tax money going for this or going. And and the point is, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. That's not our call. That's on their heads. 
We're called to pay a certain amount of tax. That's what we should pay. If we find a loophole that's legal and we can, we can use that to our advantage, well, then so be it. Nothing wrong with that. But on the other hand, you're paying your fair share. You know, you're not coming up with the church of whatever to get out of the whole deal. I mean, there is a system of laws and rules that we're working with. I mean, would it be to God that they would just go get rid of that whole thing and come up with just a fair tax or whatever you want to call it? Everybody pays the same deal. That, that would be the way to go. But you know what? That's not, it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. So Peter comes back in the house after answering their question. He'd come into the house, and Jesus anticipating. See, this is the uniqueness of Jesus. He already heard the kind. He, he wasn't out there hearing eavesdropping. He knows. He knows everything because he's God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He knew what was going to happen. And so before Peter could even ask his master, hey, you know, don't forget, we've got to pay the tax. He, before he could even do that, he anticipated. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth pay their ta- or take their taxes from the sons or from strangers what's your opinion see that's part of the process of growth they're having interactions they're talking this out see taxation in those days was not like it is today the countries were usually run by one individual an emperor or a king it wasn't a democracy as we know it today And the one on the top of the pile, basically, he's the one that calls the shots. And so, basically, he would tax, the king would tax the whole society. And he'd do it to support his kingdom and to support his family. So, the question is, do you think the family of the kings pays the tax? And he says, basically, no. He gets it from strangers. He's not going to make his own family pay a tax to him. He's going to get it from strangers. Right, correct. And then Jesus says this. Then the sons are free. The sons of the king are free. They don't have to pay the tax, right? Right? Peter's following him. But then he says this in verse 27. Nevertheless, even though, you know what, Peter? As a citizen of another place, and really, you know, I'm a king... Peter, I am the the king of kings, and you're my son. I could say we don't have to pay this tax, but I'm not going to do that. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because it would offend them. They wouldn't get it. They wouldn't understand. He says in verse 27. See, sometimes we have to choose to do certain things with our lives and in our lives that by the rule of law, Biblically, I mean, we can't point to a chapter and verse and say, oh, here's why I don't do this. But you know what? The reason I don't do certain things is because I don't want to offend somebody. You know, this, this comes up every uh, holiday Christmas time here at our church. You know, some, some folks sometimes, and meaning well, I mean, it would look nice. I don't have a problem with it. You know, why don't we put some Christmas trees along the back wall there? It would look so nice. Just simple white lights on them. It would look beautiful. Yeah, it would. You know what? I just know, (laughs) I just know that if we did that, that could possibly offend somebody for whatever reason. I mean, we're not bowing down and worshiping these trees. I mean, it's just the decorations. It's it's no more decoration than these little plants here. 
But I know there's a segment of society that looks at a Christmas tree as, I don't know what. So God forbid that they should happen in our church on that Sunday when we had that Christmas tree up there and they, oh, they had a Christmas tree in there. I remember when I first came here to Grace, we didn't have any way to put song videos up there or anything. And so we had that big screen TV over in the fellowship hall, and I said, yeah, we can use that. I can hook it up to a computer. They were, yeah, cool. Well, we didn't anticipate. You know, I mean, we, we, we took the big TV, and we set it right up here where this cross was before we remodeled everything. We got, people came in Sunday morning, and they're like, whoa, they got a TV, and what are they doing? What are these people? They, you know, some people just lost it. They couldn't see beyond why we had it there. I mean, I don't know if they thought we were going to watch whatever, you know. Who knows? So there's certain things we do or not do because we don't want to offend people. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And so he says, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. We don't have any money. They didn't have any money. They didn't have money to pay this tax. That kind of tells us of Peter's faith. He was kind of anticipating Jesus was going to do something when he came in and said, hey, the guys want the tax. What are we going to do, you know? Well, here's what you do. You go down to the sea. Remember, Peter's a fisherman. And you cast in a hook. Right there, that was a challenge for him because he didn't fish with hooks. He fished with nets. So this was a whole new step of faith for Peter. And he says, and you cast that hook out there, and there's going to be a fish that chomps on that hook. And that first fish, when you pull that out of the water, I want you to take that fish, grab it, open up its mouth, and you're going to find a piece of money in there, and that's enough to pay our tax, you and me. I talk about a miracle. Some of you are thinking, yeah, exactly. Some of you are thinking, I'm going to start going fishing and looking in fish's mouths. Maybe God has a way to pay my taxes. Well, I don't know about that. It'd be worth a try, though, wouldn't it? You never know. But do you see the sovereign hand of God over all this? I mean, that, that sounds ridiculous to the normal person. You're going to want me to go down and cast a hook and you pull the fish up and see a... Uh, a drachma, a coin in its mouth, to, enough to pay our tax? Not, not more, or just enough? Yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, you wonder how the, the money got in the fish. You know, if somebody was out in a boat and they fell over and then something fell out of their pocket, who knows? But Jesus knew, see? He probably threw the fish back. I don't think he ate that fish. I mean, that was a divine... You know, a divine fish. Had a purpose and a plan. God was working through that fish. They're crazy. And then he says, take what you find and you give it to him. Give it to them for me and you. You know, the point of this whole morning is that, yeah, we're citizens of heaven as believers. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not, you can be by a simple cry out to the Lord of faith. Asking him to forgive your sins. Come into your life to, to just allow you to be the person that he desires you to be in Christ. Turn from your sins and turn to him. That's what Christianity is. That's what coming to faith is. It's recognizing your need of a savior. Because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter. You may think you're a good person, but the Bible says that all have sinned. That's what it says. You, me, everybody. So the only fix we have for that is that we have a sinless one who died on a cross, Jesus Christ. 
And if he's interested in pulling a, putting a piece of money in a fish and having a miracle take place to meet their needs, don't you think he could take care of your sin? He's already done it for you. You just need to cry out to him and put your faith and trust in him. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you that this little story in the Gospel of Matthew really shows us that we need to be submissive to those in authority over us. We need to pray for our president, for our congressmen and senators. We may not agree with them. We may be on the other side of the the spectrum, but we still need to pray that, God, that they would carry out your purpose because you have them there. You've appointed them. And, Lord, we don't know what all that means and how it all works together, but we have to take your word as your word. And, Father, we pray that as we live as citizens here in this world that we wouldn't get so caught up in the political issues that we forget the reason we're here. We're left here to share the good news of the gospel with those who have yet to hear, to reach out, to be light in a lost and dying world with the hope that you've placed within us. I pray that we'd be able to, as believers, see many come to Christ this coming year. And, Father, I pray that it would start right here in our midst. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.